0: Let me just kind of give you a background on what is happening here in 1 Timothy. Paul is a church planter, which means he basically goes around to different regions and he plants gospel-centered churches, uh, churches that are centered around who Jesus is and how to live as people of God. And so what Paul does, he plants a church in uh, this place called Ephesus. There has never been a church like Ephesus, the whole uh, continent of Asia, was, was blown away by miraculous things that were happening in this small town. And so what, what happens is Paul does life there for three plus years, and he begins making disciples and begins seeing people come to know Jesus. And then what happens is as he moves away, he hears that, man, there's, some, there's a chance that there might be some teachers in this same church that are teaching bad things. Things about Jesus, untrue things about Jesus. And so, what he does is he begins to tell this church through several letters. He writes Ephesians to this church, telling them, Look, fierce wolves will come from within, and they begin to feed on the flock, and they begin to teach false. Doctrine, the false things about the gospel. And so what happens is he sends in really his right-hand man, this guy that he's been discipling, this young uh, spastic pastor named Timothy. Timothy's probably in his late 20s, early 30s. And he sends him there to go and really clean up the mess that is happening in Ephesus. And this is what 1 Timothy is all about, this letter that he writes to young Timothy to help fix some of the problems that they're facing. And so for some of us, this is difficult because right away, the first thing that he tells young Timothy is, look, these guys that are teaching false doctrine, these guys are teaching false things about Jesus, tell those guys to park it. And so this is hard for us because most of the time we're like, man, that just doesn't seem loving. Because man, they're just teachers, and they're just teaching things. Listen, he's saying the most loving thing to do, this is this is uh, uh, verse 5 in 1 Timothy chapter 1, most loving thing that we do, our, our charge and our aim is love, and the most loving thing we can do is just tell these guys to stop teaching wrong things about Jesus, because wrong things about Jesus are harmful for us. And so for some of us, this, this is difficult, because most of the time, false teachers look really nice, it's like my sister growing up, and she would, uh, she's, I have a sister who's 14, no, eight years younger than me, and uh, she would date these guys, and I would be like, why are you dating that guy? Well, he's so nice, right? Well, he's not going to come in here and be mean, right? If he's like, he, he doesn't even get like how to be a snake, like he doesn't even get that. And so he's not going to come in here mean. He's going to come in here nice because he's trying to take advantage of you. He's trying to go out with you. You're a pretty girl, right? You know, I was saying, look, I understand this because I'm a guy, right? I know how guys think. And I would try to tell her and just because I'm being loving. I'm showing her, look, you don't need to watch out for these kind of guys. And so with false teachers, we have to know what to look for because look, just because they're nice, just because they mean well, and I'm sure these guys in 1 Timothy, man, there's probably guys that just mean well. They just don't know what they're saying. And so what happens is um, the question that begins to pop up, what is it that really distracts us from the gospel? Because I think this is what begins to happen in these churches that Paul plants. They, they get the gospel, people get saved, people know Christ, and the community happens around the gospel, and then you start to see them kind of drift from the gospel. So the question is, what is it that distracts us from the gospel? And most of us would answer very quickly, sin so it distracts us from the gospel, pride, idolatry, Right? American consumerism, right? Uh, maybe it's addiction, or maybe it's, um, maybe it's just depression, or maybe it's just all these things. We, we would typically put them in categories that are all around sin. But let me just pose to you something that's maybe a little bit less obvious. All those things do distract us from the gospel, but I do think that there's something more to that, and it's this. Maybe... What distracts us from the gospel is something that looks like the gospel, but it isn't the gospel. Are you tracking with that? Maybe what distracts us from the gospel the most is something that looks like the gospel, but has some slight modifications where it no longer is the gospel. And this is what Paul is dealing with here in the life of this church. And let me just say this. If it happens in Timothy, if it happens in Ephesus, where someone would just kind of forget the importance of the gospel and the, the community is built around something other than the gospel because they get so close to it that they're so, but they're so far away from it, maybe it could possibly happen here. Maybe there's people here that think that they get the gospel, but they don't. Can we just pose that this morning? That's a possibility, right? We could be so close but have some things wrong about it where it's not even the gospel. And so what Paul does is he begins to build a clear vision to young Timothy in Ephesus around what the gospel really, truly is. And so start with with me in chapter one, verse six. It says that certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So what he's saying is there's some false teachers here that are talking about the law. And they're making these statements around the law that they think that they know, but they don't. They have no business teaching. If you've ever sat under a teacher that had no business teaching, I'm going to tell you that is a very painful thing. I remember my high school science teacher. She sat out for like three months. She was she got really sick, and, and we had a, a substitute come in. And I kind of knew right away that she didn't know what she was talking about. And I don't think she had ever cracked a science book since she was in high school. When we got to metabolism, and she said metabolism, I was like, uh oh. I don't think she knows what she's talking about. If I pick up on wrong grammar, you're in trouble, all right? I'm just going to say, I mean, you are in trouble. And so, man, she, she, she started reading, and she would say, what do you guys think? And we ended up, like, teaching the class for her. But, man, it was painful. I'm like, look, every substitute teacher should know this. You put a video in and let us watch it, right? I want to see the man land on the moon again. Like, just do it. Just put it in there, right? But no, man, she was like eager to like, I'm going to teach this confidently, even though I have nothing, no clue what we're saying here, I'm just going to do it. And this is kind of the mindset these people are teaching to make, to make really followers around what they're trying to do, their agenda and they talk about this thing called the law. They, they begin to bring this up. So what does that mean? What, is, what are we dealing with here when we talk about the law in First Timothy? Are we talking about the uh, Mosaic law, the law of, uh, law of Moses? Let me explain what that is. Um, in, the, um, in the Old Testament, what you have is Moses, he is leading the people of Israel out of captivity. Man, they're in, they're in crazy captivity. And God tells Moses to go up to the most powerful leader in the world and tell him, let my people go. And so he does that. And then God begins to give them little things like, man, there's a fire by, you know, fire by uh, night and cloud by day that they can follow to get out of captivity. And then he gives them the law. He gives them the law. He gives Moses the law to tell these people. And that's the Mosaic law. But, the, but here's the thing in the New Testament, in the New Covenant with Jesus, we're not under the Mosaic law. And, and so Paul, when he talks about it, he, he does it in here in Timothy the same way that he does it earlier in Ephesus. So let me just read some scripture. Now stay with me on this because this is gonna help you understand the rest of what's happening here in 1 Timothy 1. So Ephesians 2, 14 through 16. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have this up on the screen. It says, for he himself... Is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in the flesh the well, dividing wall of hostility, by admonishing, by abolishing, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might. Reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So, what does he say about it? It's been abolished. It's been abolished. What's the next verse? Uh, We even see this in Romans 7. Romans 7, he says, the same writer, Paul, says the same thing. He says, You also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to one another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we might bear, what's the word, fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law. Praise God, right? Having died to which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. He even says the same thing. 1 Corinthians 9. I'll read this one again. Verse 20, it says, To the Jews... I became as Jews in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I I I became one as under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God. But, listen, under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So what you see consistently is he saying, we're not under the law of Moses, we're under the law of Christ. We're under the New Testament scriptures and commandments that Jesus gives us. We're under the Old and New uh, Testament, what Jesus says about him. So when we look at the Old Testament, we look at it through the lenses of the New Testament, it helps us understand it, that we're under the law of Christ. And so what he does is Paul, as he plants this church, in Ephesus, if there's one thing they would have heard, it would be this. It would be that, look, you're not under the old law, but you're under Christ. And so now there's teachers that are coming up that are beginning to say, actually, no, they begin to change it. They begin to flip it around and say, no, actually the gospel's not first. The law is first. We got to, we got to start obeying all these rules and then God will love us. And so what Paul does, he begins to correct it. So he moves them from then to now language. Look at verse eight. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So what is he talking about? The law of Christ. It, it, it relates to how we see the gospel. And so he's, he, if he, even if he was talking about the Mosaic law, same thing still applies. We're under the law of Christ. We're under the law of Christ. And so for every single one of us in this room, Every single one of us, who every person who lives on this earth is under this standard, and that standard is Christ. What is Christ? He's perfect. He's perfect. So we have this standard of perfection that we are accountable to. And so this is what he does. He begins to explain what the law of Christ does to two different types of people— how does the law of Christ affect believers? And how does the law of Christ affect non-believers? And this is very important that we grasp this because this will help us shape our view really of salvation and what salvation is. So let me just read verses nine through 11. i I'll we'll start in verse eight. He says, And now we know that law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient for the ungodly and the sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers, the sexual and moral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So he says, look, there's believers and there's non-believers, and the the law of Christ affects both of those people in different ways. So the question is, how does the law, let's just start with non-believers. How does the law of Christ affect a non-believer? Well, For me, um, if if you look at this, you you think about, let's just use the Old Testament law, for for instance. When the the people of Israel heard the law, did that cause them to ultimately obey? No. No. I mean, if you look at at Exodus 20, and you see, man, everybody's clapping because of the law. And then like a few, I mean, the first two commandments are about. Don't worship a graven image. Don't put any God before me. A few chapters later, worshiping a golden calf, right? No, I'm not going to do that. And so what this does, what the law does to a non-believer is it doesn't cause us to obey. It just tells us how sinful we are. And for an unbeliever, man, man, that makes us want to sin more. Okay, you don't Believe me, let me give you an example of this. I am a tad OCD, all right? Um, Like if I leave my office, and like this morning, I walked out of my office and I I hit my desk in such a way that my coaster for my drink turned a little bit. And I walked out of the room and I was like, no, I'm gonna go fix that. And I went back and I fixed it and made sure it was straight. And then I could, oh, I, my chair's a little off. Now I put it back and I like, uh, it takes me like an hour to leave a room, right, sometimes. Um, because man, maybe that's not a tad. That's really, a, you know, OCD. But anyway, that's how I am. And so, man, you put me down a hallway of like newly constructed place and, it, and there's a sign up, do not touch wet paint. Touching it, right? I gotta see if that's wet. I wonder if it's dry or not, you know? Maybe, it's, maybe they have a, separate, a super kind of paint that dries faster. Let me just check. Oh, there's my fingerprints. Oh, let me wipe that off. Right. I'm not stuck. You know, wet cement, forget about it. Both hands going straight in. Both hands, right? Ben was here. You know, it's just like, that is my knit. Like, I'm, not, I'm going for it. You know, speed limit, 55. Seven miles over every time, you know? Oh, that's my limit. Yeah, but I'm going to go, you know, they won't pull me, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'll justify that way. And so, like, that's how we roll typically, we see a sign, we see, don't do, you know, just this morning, I mean, Patrick had no idea what we were going to talk about this morning. Um, well, hopefully he did. He read 1 Timothy, but uh, he didn't know I was going to make this point. But he was just like, we were walking down the hall, he saw, you know, fire alarm. He goes, man, did you ever want to pull that? I said, Yes. All the time, are the sprinklers going to go off? It's going to make a loud sound. Are there going to be strobe lights? Like, how is this going to work? I want to know. I know it says it's like a red. Everything red for me just makes me want to go, right? Um, but it's he's saying, look, look, why? You know, what would it be like if we pulled it? You know, it's just like some like we're twelve years old again or whatever. You know, and this that's what it does. This is what the law does on an unbelieving heart. Is it presses and it says, here's here are the things that God does not want. And we say, "That's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do." And so a non-believer, when they see this, this is why he lists so many things in verses nine through 11, this is a non-believer seeing the law and responding to it through disobedience, through rebellion. So yeah, it makes us aware of sin, but for an unbelieving heart, they sin more. They sin more. You see this throughout the Old Testament. You going to see, it, like Israel is predominantly, there's a remnant of believers in Israel, so there's predominantly unbelieving hearts that when they are conf, uh, confronted with the truth of who God is, they rebel. They fight against it. And so Paul, he does something here, and I want to go to another place today uh, to show you, because we've we got just a limited amount of verses, so I'm going to just show you one thing that's going to help us see some light on 1 Timothy. Same writer, Paul, same issue. Paul talks about, something that's called common grace. And this is what God offers to every person. So let me just show you this. Romans chapter one. So hold your place in first Timothy. Flip over to Romans. Romans chapter one. Let me start in verse 18. It says this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God, listen, is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his internal power and divine nature, have clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So, what's he talking about here? He's saying God has the law of Christ, the common grace that he's given all people, he's offered to all people gives us some sense of accountability that we're all under. That we're all under his common grace. And here's, let me explain what common grace is. Common grace helps us answer the question, does God love everyone? Now, I know everyone says right away, does God love everyone? Yes. Everyone's like very eager to answer that. But that question is, is actually pretty complex. Because here's, here's why it's complex. Because is everyone in heaven? No. So God loves everyone, but it's different. Like, so, because it seems like if he loved everyone, everyone would be in heaven, right? But does he love ev- Because of common grace, we can say yes. Because here's what common grace is. All of us, because of our sin, we deserve eternity in hell. We deserve eternal punishment. But here's what common grace does. It says, look, I know you deserve hell, but I'm going to give you a chance here on earth And I'm going to give you, honestly, good things. I'm going to give you a house to live in. Uh, You like food? I'll give you food. Not only that, but I'll actually add a little flavor to it. You know, Chipotle. You can eat for that. You know, you can go there. Oh, you like Coke. Oh, you don't like. You like diet. Okay, I'll give you those. And it just gives us. We have all this variety of things that, when common grace says you can enjoy life. You can enjoy sex. You can enjoy mountains. You can enjoy a beautiful sunrise and a beautiful sunset. You actually breathe air. You don't deserve. You're stealing air from God. You don't deserve it. By the way, if you take something and have no intention of getting it back, it's stealing. That's common grace that he says you get to have. So why does he make the color blue so beautiful? Because ultimately, he wants you to see that he's good. But it's part of it that you get to enjoy the color blue because of out of this common grace. So like with my son, my son is, I'll be six years old next week. When we go to the one thousand, one of the one thousand um, frozen yogurt places in Greenville, how did that happen? Like it was like one and then there was like a thousand. Like there's going to be more frozen yogurt places than houses soon. Um, but when we go, he asks, you know, when he asks the question, Daddy, why, why is this frozen yogurt so good? I can actually tell him it's because God loves you. And he wants you to enjoy this flavor. He doesn't want you to worship this flavor, but he wants you to enjoy this flavor. And so that when you put, what's that, cake batter? And you put that, like, whatever that cream stuff is at the very end of the line that I want, I'm trying to steal, like, when I leave. And you pour that on there and you put cheesecake pieces and cookie dough pieces on top of that, what God is doing is he's actually showing you how beautiful and lovely he is so that you would ultimately, when you taste that, you would say, wow, God must be really good. He must be, re- this, he's the creator of this. He must be really great. And so well, here's the problem though. With common grace, this is what he's given us so that we would ultimately see him as beautiful and ultimately see him as good. What common grace does sometimes is people that are unbelievers, when we give them common grace, they say, you know what? I like this and I will worship this, not the creator. I will enjoy sex, but I will not see it as the beautiful picture of Christ in the church and a beautiful creator who's showing me how wonderful this is to show me how wonderful he is. Rather, I will worship this and this will be my God and this will be my idol. And see, this is, this is the law of Christ because what happens is he's saying, I've given you truth, I've given you th- things in this world to enjoy, but you choose them more than you choose the creator who made you. So that's common grace, but sovereign grace is very different. Sovereign grace is that God opens up the eyes of your heart that you would see him. That The spirit of God draws you into his presence and that you see and hear and know the gospel, that you repent of your sins and believe the gospel. Look, that's, not everyone's going to get that. It's for those that the Father wills that, we would, that he would open our eyes and we would respond in the gospel. And so, man, look, there's common grace, there's sovereign grace. Common grace is, does God love everybody? Yes, through his common grace, he does. He gives you the law of Christ. He gives you an opportunity to know and so that you are, as Romans 1 says, held accountable. You are without excuse. And so, instead of common grace drawing us to, drawing an unbeliever to the gospel, it it actually might push them away. And it's just like, as Jesus said, in, in John chapter 1, Jesus talks about how The darkness hates the light. You think about the gospel being Jesus' rescue mission on earth, where the, the, the world is full of darkness, but Jesus gives light. And those who want to be rescued, man, they'll be rescued. And those who hate that light, despise that light, they will continue to walk away from that light. That's the reality of the gospel. When Jesus comes on the scene and he walks on this earth, that there were people who, and you couldn't even believe it. Why do people hate Jesus on earth? It's because, man, they're, they're stuck in the darkness. They hate that light and they're without excuse though because we're under the law of Christ. And so what Paul says to Timothy in verses 9 through 11 is almost identical to what Paul says in Romans 1 about these people who reject Common grace, if you look at nine through eleven of Timothy, and if you look and compare it to chapter one of Romans starting verse twenty six through thirty two you 're going to see a stark comparison look, look at look at twenty six uh, of romans one Romans one twenty six it says this for this reason that God gave them up to dishonorable passions. These are the people that they are without excuse, they reject the light of the gospel that shines. For there, women exchanged natural relations for those who are contrary to nature. And men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled. With all manner of unrighteousness, evil, contentious, mal- malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's, listen, they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who do them. And what he's saying is, this is the heart of an unbeliever when confronted with the gospel without the Holy Spirit of God working on their hearts. This is the outcome of an unbeliever when confronted with the law of Christ. I don't want it. I don't want it. And so this is what it looks like, unless Jesus is working on your heart, this is what you look like. But what does the gospel do, and what does the law do, the law of Christ do? This is an unbeliever, what does it do to a believer? That's, that's another question. So we see two different types, we see believer, unbeliever, what does it do to a believer? Here's what it does. And this is the beautiful part of what we see in 1 Timothy. This is what Paul's trying to restore here in Ephesus. To a believer, when we are confronted by the law of Christ, here's what we see. It's what we can look forward to. The law of Christ is what we can look forward to. Here's what that means. One of my favorite passages in all of scripture is Philippians 1, 6. It says, he who began a good work in you will finish it into the day you meet Christ Jesus. Beautiful passage. Here's what that means. When Jesus Christ saves you, he doesn't save you based on things that you've done. He based it, he, does, he saves you in spite of who you are. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so when he saves you, he takes out, as scripture says, an old heart, a heart of stone, and he replaces it with a heart of flesh. Here's what that means. You, as a believer are an incurable God lover. That's what that means. You will never lose your relationship with Christ because it's been sealed by the Holy Spirit of God and that you will consistently grow in your love for the gospel. You'll hit trials and tribulations. You'll, you'll doubt and you'll, you'll sin and you'll fall in, but your, your movement is upward, toward the cross of Christ, and you are going to consistently grow in the gospel. And so what the law of Christ does is it says, this is what you will look like. And for me, man, one of the things I'm like kind of obsessed with is thinking about what I'm going to look like when I'm older, I've got two boys and I'm always thinking about well, how are they going to look? You know, like when, when Finn was born, he looked just like Jessica. Now he looks just like me. I don't know if that's just, you know, the sinfulness of the world that's caused him to look more like me, but he does. Gideon looks just like me, but now he's starting to look like Jess. You know, he's, there's hope for him. You know, there's so, but there was a stage where Finn, I don't know what happened, but it was like a month. He went through like a Chris Farley phase where he got real chubby and started looking like Chris Farley. And I just remember like making like old Saturday Night Live jokes with him. And he didn't get it because he was a baby. But um, I, I just remember that. I was thinking, what is he going to look like, you know? And I'm, I'm just like thinking, what is what's he going to look like? Who, who, who's going to marry? So I'm praying for his wife all the time. And I, I'm thinking, it just helps me think about stuff like that. But I'm always thinking, what am I going to look like when I get married? Or when I get married. When I get older. When I get older. <laughs> what am I going to look like when I get older? Because I look different than when I did when I got married. And so how, how, how is that going to change? And so I, I know some of you have probably already done like a Facebook thing where you upload a picture and it shows you that you're, you know, this is you in 50 years or something. But what if I were to tell you, man, we had a booth outside in the lobby that you could go in and it would tell you. And you, could, you could, it would take a picture and then after you're done, it will print out a copy of what you will look like, like God ordained this booth to be set up. That you will look like this in 30 years. Would you do it? Would you like to know what you would look like? And well, here's the thing about the law of Christ the law of Christ tells you what you will look like if you're a believer. That's what it does. The law of Christ, the scriptures say, a believer will look like this. It says, So there's hope for you. Because if you're a believer, no matter what, you're gonna be hot. You are going to look good. You're going to look amazing 30 years. Because he who began a good work in you will finish it. That means, man, you're struggling now. You're not going to struggle forever. You're going to meet Jesus in heaven one day. But hey, you're going to struggle on and off here on earth. You're going to sin. You're going to fall into sin. You're going to fall into frustration and doubt. But guess what? Even that, even that he's going to use for his glory because he's good. That's the hope we have as believers. I remember thinking back, um, thinking about, like, the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, we've all thought about, like, if you've grown up in church, you've seen fruit of the Spirit felt boards, right? And there's a big, you know, cascade basket, and we're supposed to, like, take, you know, here's a banana, and here's an apple, and that represents love and joy and peace. And, and we would always, like, try to do, like, make it into a spiritual survey. So, so let me just read to you what, what this, this uh, fruit of the Spirit is. And let me, let me help you understand this, because I think this is, this is important. Galatians 5, 20 24. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no, what's the word? There's no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. So here's the thing. Here, here's why I use that felt board thing. Because here's what we typically do with that. We say, well, I struggle with joy, and, but I have peace, and I, you know, I'm a person who's faithful, and, and we try to make it into like some kind of like spiritual gift analysis situation. It's not that. Here's what he's saying. It's fruit of the Spirit, not fruits. Fruit of the Spirit, which means this. When Jesus saves you, he, he, this is your Xerox copy that he prints out, what you're going to be and what you're going to look like. When Jesus saves you, he's saying, this is what you will look like if you're a believer. Look, you're not going to be perfect. You're not going to always have peace. You're not going to always, but you're going to grow in all of these things. You are. That's the beauty of the gospel, that he begins to change you from the inside out. He takes out an old heart and he puts in a new heart, and that new heart is going to love God more. Now, look, you're going to sin. You're going to fight and you, you're going to fall into struggles that you've had 10 years ago. I get that. But here's the thing. You're not going to get better at sinning. You're not going to practice sinning. You're going to practice righteousness. And you're going to fight, as Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight. You're going to fight sin. That's what you're going to do. That's what a believer does. You begin to love the things that God loves. And you begin to hate the things that God hates and you are going to be at war with sin. You might look at this list in 1 Timothy 1, chapter, verses nine to 11. You say, man, I struggle with all those things or half of those things. Yes, but you don't love it. You don't like it. You don't like it. So I think a believer is a person who's at war with sin and their affections are always on Christ. Longing to know him more, longing to so you say, Man, I'm just in a rut right now. I'm in a rut. I'm kind of stuck and I want to read my Bible. Look, man, if you're truly a believer, he is going to work in your heart to love his word. You're going to. For an unbeliever, man, when we are confronted with the law of Christ, and the Lord's not working on our heart, we're gonna want to send more. The promise that we have as a believer, this causes us and shows us what we are going to be. So in 1 Timothy 1, verse 8, he says, The law is good if one uses it lawfully. Here's what he's saying. You will produce fruit if you are a believer. And here's the problem. Here's what we typically do here Oftentimes, in the South, I'm from the South, so I can make fun of the South, okay? Here's what we do. In Christian culture, here's what happens. We tend to say, Jesus loves me if I do these things. We tend to say, look, I don't know God, but I'm going to go to church, and I bet he'll love me more if I do that. I don't love God, but look, if I read my Bible, I bet he'll love me. I'm going to go, and I'm going to go to the life group. I'm going to go to leadership summit at night. I'm going to join a volunteer team because I want God to love me. But here's the problem with that. That is us applying the law without the cross. Here's what Paul wants to restore here in Ephesus. He's saying, we need the cross. And when we see the beauty of the cross, we will want to obey the gospel We will want to obey the law of Christ. We will want to walk in newness with him. And so this morning, here's my challenge for us. If this is a standard, if the law of Christ is a standard, and us becoming believers, we, we want to know him more. We desire to obey him. We desire to live holy lives. We, that's our desire. That's our heartbeat to fight and war against sin, to love the things that God loves, to hate the things that God loves. If that's what a believer looks like, here's my question. Are you a believer? Paul says it very clearly in 2 Corinthians. He says, test yourself to see if you're of the faith test yourself to see if you're of the faith. And for those of you who are believers and say, man, look, I'm not perfect. I'm fighting sin. I'm, I'm warning. Look, I'm not practicing getting better at sin. I'm actually trying to find I mean, I've got brothers around me that are holding me accountable and walking through this. Man, that is great. That is great. But here's, here's what I want to press you on if you're a believer this morning. I and mean, You're saying, look, I have Jesus in my heart. and I know he's, he's, he's finishing the work that he started in me. I have a desire to know him more and deeply and I want to I do what he wants me to do. I want to go and share the gospel with me. And if that's you this morning, look, look, here's the thing. Maybe there's people in your life that God has placed you in who think that they're believers, but there's no fruit in their heart. And maybe your approach with them needs to be different. It needs to be around, do you know the gospel? Do you know Jesus? Because the Jesus that saves us is the one who transforms us from the inside out. And so what this does for me, man, when I when I'm confronted with a pastor like this, I am I am broken over a lost world. I'm broken when I think, man, there are people that love common grace. And they this is the closest to heaven they'll get. This is the closest to heaven they'll get is this earth. And I'm broken by that. And I'm also broken by people who said, you know what? I've got the gospel. God loves me because I do all these things. God loves me because I can obey rules. Look, man, God will not love you because you obey rules. God loves you based on what Jesus has done for you. And so this approach for me, man, it makes me broken for lost people. And I hope that you will be as well if you're a believer here this morning. If you're not a believer, here's what we want to challenge you with. Embrace the gospel. God will not love you based on what you do. God loves you based on what Jesus Christ has done. When He lived a perfect, sinless life, when He died on the cross for our sins in our place, He rose from the grave, conquering the penalty of Satan's sin and death. And when we repent of our sins and we believe in the gospel, we can have eternal life through Jesus Christ. That is the hope that we want to give you this morning. And our challenge this morning is that you would embrace Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray this morning, that your spirit